Hello and welcome to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Will the Liberals backpedal on their controversial plan to tax small businesses? Is the U.S. planning to sabotage NAFTA talks with demands they know Canada and Mexico can't stomach? And will the government's new deal with Netflix be a boost or a drain on Canadian TV and film? We kick off our show with the McLean's panel weighing in on a busy week in Canadian politics. He's disappointed but remains hopeful. 17-year-old Noah Irvin, who's been pushing the federal government to take action on mental health and addiction, was supposed to have a phone conversation with the Prime Minister on Friday, but it's been pushed back last minute. Noah joins us on the show to tell us his story and explain what he's looking for from Justin Trudeau. And he spent his career poking fun at politicians while also showing us the best Canada has to offer. But the 15th season of the Rick Mercer Report will be the last for the show. Comedian Rick Mercer is here to share his thoughts about the long run of his popular program, what it's like to take on Ottawa as a comedian, and what could be next in his career. For your politics, for your power, welcome to The Hill. This week has been a tough one for the Trudeau government. Not only were the Liberals once again facing heat over their plan to change the tax structure for small businesses, but they also had a big announcement about Netflix appear to backfire and the third round of NAFTA talks wrapped up in Ottawa, surrounded by fears the U.S. could be preparing demands that would be impossible for Canada or Mexico to accept. To take a look back at this busy week, we kick off our show with the McLean's panel. I'm joined by McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes and McLean Senior Writer Paul Wells. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks. Yeah, great. Let's start off with these tax changes that the government has put forward. Once again, the opposition really targeting the government on this one, but also uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau appeared before a committee to talk about this, to take questions. And John, you mm, were there monitoring You're looking all at of me, this. right? Yes, like I was I supposed am. to explain the tax issue. The, the problem with this tax story is that on the one hand, it's unbelievably dense technically, but on the other hand, it's it's actually quite not simple, but it's fairly it's it, the politics of it is fairly understandable. It's the politics of two claims, right? The liberals say we're going after rich people who are avoiding paying their fair share tax, and the conservatives say no, you're not. You're going after hardworking, job-creating small business guys. That's the that's the the problem. And if you just listen to the what happened in the House of Commons this week or what happened at committee, you're going to hear a very cool Bill Morneau responding to a very persistent Pierre Polyev, the conservative finance critic. The interesting part for me was hearing what went on outside the committee room when uh, Finance Minister Morneau was really, like, got quite steamed about being pressed again and again and again on these subjects. And so the question becomes for me, Cormac, how do you connect this complicated technical question with this, what is now a really hot political question. I mean, they really, they don't come together that often. And, and I think where it's what it's going to come down to is this. I think that Morneau is setting the stage now for trying to make some compromises on his changes to try to take the edge off of this for some small businesses and certainly for farmers. He's going to make sure farmers can't claim this makes it harder for them to pass the family farm on to the next generation, things like that. He's going to try to offer businesses a way to save that isn't as lucrative as it is right now for them in terms of avoiding taxes, but is better than, say, a regular old RRSP or tax-free savings account. So what we'll then have is another stage of political battle. It'll be... Do the Tories claim victory 
we push the government into doing some sensible things? Or do they just fight it right down the line? And Morneau tried to say that in this town hall he had yeah. in Oakville saying, look, we haven't made any final decisions yet. This is what the consultation process is all about. And yet still, he had people down his throat over this issue. So, Paul, is this bad policy, uh, bad communications, or a mixture of the two here? We'll, we'll see whether it's bad policy. I mean, I think the almost prehistoric original intent of all of this makes a lot of sense. These tax measures incorporating to, 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 to benefit from the increasingly large gap between personal income tax rates and, and business income tax rates makes a lot of sense. Uh, the number of people who've been making use of, of these advantages has tripled in the last 15 years. Uh, Lots of doctors and lawyers and accountants. Well, this is it. I mean, and, and uh, so wanting to close that, I'm sorry to use the term loophole, makes a lot of sense. But in the details, it's very complex. It was dumb of the Liberals to talk about fairness as their motivating factor because that would invite their opponents to point out that Bill Morneau's a super rich guy and Justin <laughs> Trudeau's a super rich guy and what about their own tax business? And, um, you know, the event's gotten more and more complex. I'm really struck by how the Liberals have remained on the defence. They've essentially been pleading for people to be more reasonable. And give them time. Sorry to interrupt you, Paul. Just give us some time. We'll get this right. For two solid weeks. I can't imagine... Brian Mulroney, Jean Chrétien, Stephen Harper, staying on the defensive on a major government initiative for this long. So that's a design flaw uh, in, in the way that the government has gone about it. But they get a second, they get a second move. They get, they get a chance to um, bring in probably a substantially amended set of proposals. And at that point, first of all, a lot of the things that are worrying people will, know, will turn out not to be true. Secondly, we'll have certainty so that any individual will be able to get a, a solid answer to whatever question they might have. And I think the Liberals are going to hurry to get to that new equilibrium as fast as they can. I expect them to announce, announcement, to announce modifications as early as next week. And, and speaking of taxes, one company that may not be paying mm. the same taxes as other companies will be Netflix. Something announced is a side Great deal segue. that Netflix Great is... I, I try, I try. But Netflix has reached this side deal with the Trudeau government to avoid facing the same kind of requirements as uh, traditional broadcasters when it comes to Canadian content and production. But they have promised to pump $500 million over five years into Canadian production. So, Paul, when we look at this Netflix issue, the government came out and tried to frame this as this major new deal that has never been done before outside of the United States. But they've just faced a lot of criticism from people within the industry that this is not exactly creating an even playing field with CanCon providers here. So has this turned out, has this blown up in the government's face? I, I, I think so. I, uh, Melanie Jolie, when she announced that she was going to begin this process of trying to come up with a package of policies for culture in, in digital, digital age, had a sit-down interview with a, with a friendly uh, reporter over at the Globe and Mail and said, uh, we're just going to recreate the new dawn. It's just going to be like you've never seen anything like it. It's, uh, birds are going to be falling from the heavens. It's going to be such a, such, a, such a revolution. In the end, she's made very few changes to anything. And the centerpiece for that is the situation for Netflix. Netflix has agreed to spend $100 million a year for five years on television and movie production in Canada. There's two problems with that. First of all, that doesn't amount to a promise to create Canadian content as we would normally understand it. The Supergirl TV series 
which is set in fictional central city America or whatever, is, 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 is shot in Toronto or Vancouver and would qualify under what, what it is that Netflix is promising. The other thing is that last year when Netflix was desperately trying to avoid paying uh, a tax in Canada, it argued to the Canadian Heritage Department that it is already producing hundreds of millions of dollars a year in Canada. And so if you put two and two together, Netflix has essentially committed to spend quite a bit less than it has recently been spending in Canada in return for not having to pay a tax. Meanwhile, companies like our employer, Rogers, pay the same hefty taxes that just about everyone does uh, for the privilege of creating Canadian content in Canada. I don't, I don't actually carry water on this for my employer, but I can understand why a lot of companies that are more traditional in structure and we're hoping that Melanie Jolie would, uh, would level the playing field are disappointed this week. All right, and uh, we just want to wrap up the panel with discussions about NAFTA. The third round of talks wrapped up this week in Ottawa. John, you were there yeah. for the final news conference, but yeah. late in the week we saw reports, uh, sources saying that it appears these mm. demands that the U.S. has on these contentious issues, which we still haven't seen yet, still haven't been given to Canada Mexico, right. but it seems like they are going to be designed to possibly sabotage the discussions by putting forward ideas that just will not be palatable at all for Canada and Mexico. What are your thoughts Quick on this? Quick point on that. There, there are several uh, theories about what the Americans are about to put on the table, but I would like to focus on just one. From the outset, Donald Trump has made it clear that his focus, if there's one focus for his ire about trade, particularly trade with Mexico, is he doesn't want American auto jobs going to Mexico. That is the big one. And they've said from the outset that they're going to demand a, a made in America content requirement in automobiles that are treated duty free in the NAFTA zone. Right now, if you've got a car and it's actually the number is 62.5%, it's 62.5% made in Canada, the US or Mexico or some combination of the three, then it trades duty-free in the NAFTA zone. Now, the Americans will want to adapt that and make sure there's a Made in America content requirement. That is a absolute deal-breaker for, for Canada and Mexico. And, and yet, I suspect it is a non-negotiable bottom line for Donald Trump. So a collision is coming here. A collision is coming here. And then just very, very quickly for both of you, do you think that the Americans actually entered these talks with good faith out of hopes that they would be able to get a compromise deal with Canada and Mexico? Or do you think they were uh, sort of at the negotiating table in bad faith from the start? I wouldn't call it bad faith in the sense that there's a gap between the professional negotiating team the Americans have there. We know these people. Lighthizer you know, negotiated the TPP. These are people who negotiate trade deals. They, they, they go in with the good intentions. But hey, the buck stops at the Trump Whitehouse right now. So it doesn't matter about the, you know, Freeland talked about not being able to look inside the souls of the people across the table. I mean, she can't, but she can look at them and probably take a good guess. They'd like to do something reasonable, but they know at the end of the day, they may not be able to. I think the people are negotiating this deal uh, on Trump's behalf have been hoping at some level that they could sneak one by him at the end of this process, mm. that they could catch him distracted or in a good mood, and they could sell a technical improvement of NAFTA as the renegotiation that he wants. If he happens to be attentive on that day, then then we're all headed as a continent for major catastrophe. That was the McLean's panel discussing how the Liberals may backpedal on some of their proposed tax changes, how a big Netflix deal may have backfired, and how upcoming U.S. demands could put NAFTA renegotiations at risk. Still to come on the show, we speak with a teenager who's been pushing the federal government to take action on mental health and addictions, but had his phone call with Justin Trudeau cancelled by the Prime Minister's office. And we speak with comedian Rick Mercer about ending his TV show, interviewing politicians, and what's next in his career. 
Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Coming up on the show, comedian Rick Mercer will join us to talk about the final season of his TV show and a look back at his approach to interviewing politicians. But first... A 17-year-old from Guelph has been grabbing headlines in recent weeks as he started a lobbying campaign to pressure the federal government into creating a secretariat for mental health and addictions. Noah Irvin's fight for more action and better services comes after he tragically lost both parents due to their struggles with mental health. Now, Irvin was supposed to have a phone conversation with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau this week to discuss this issue. But just hours before it was to take place, the Prime Minister's office cancelled. I spoke with Noah shortly after that to hear his story and tell me what he thinks of the PM delaying their discussion. So Noah, before we get into your lobbying efforts with the federal government, uh, can you tell us your backstory? What happened to your family? So what what, uh, kind of led me to to doing this, to, to advocating, was because uh, 12 years ago this year, I lost my mom to suicide, and two years ago this uh, this year, I lost my father to a prescription drug overdose. And um, I felt as though my story and the thousands of other Canadians that uh, that um, can't speak out because they're embarrassed, I felt the need to to speak out and and tell the government that what is happening across the country is wrong and that the government has abandoned thousands of Canadians and uh, there, are, there are stories like mine across the country uh, and I thought that the government needed to hear those stories. Uh, I'm one of them but my story is not unique in uh, in that sense. So if you don't mind me asking what what mental health issues were your mother was your mother struggling with and, and did your father's addiction problems start because of that? Yeah, so my my father, I'll start off with him. So his mental health really started, I don't know, when he was around 17. That's what my grandparents have really said is when it really kicked off um, for his mental health. In his 20s, it was a lot of anger, but then into his 30s, it was a lot of paranoia. And uh, it mirrored signs of schizophrenia. He was never diagnosed, but it, it seemed uh, like he suffered from schizophrenia. Uh, my mother had BPD, borderline personality disorder. Um, I'm not an expert in what it truly encompasses, but from what I've understood, you can go from being super, super happy to incredibly depressed very quickly. And uh, uh, and that's what led her to um, uh, killing herself. So I think uh, losing your parents is hard at any age. Um one thing with my mom is it got harder as I got older. When she first died, I didn't really comprehend what had happened, mainly because I was so young. I was only five, right? So, uh, but for my dad, it was that was really hard because I, I knew what had happened and I could understand and grasp it, um, that he wasn't coming home, that he that he died, and, and, that, um, and that I'd never get to see him again. While a lot of people dealing with the loss that you've dealt with uh, may, you know, take take a different route in terms of dealing with these these tragic circumstances, you're deciding to try and turn this 
into a positive, not just for yourself, but for others who are dealing with the same situation that you are by pushing for the creation of a secretariat for mental health and addiction issues. Why do you think that that position will help people in your situation, your parents' situation, uh, that isn't already being sort of taken care of uh, by the federal government and provincial governments and the departments they run? Yeah, so the secretariat will... Secretariats, by default, are very uh, symbolic, but they also give one spotlight for mental health. Uh, with with health as it is, health is an exceptionally broad topic, and it's not, uh, or I do not feel that health um, and, and the way it's structured is adequate to, to deal with mental health. Uh, so the Secretariat would, would be a spotlight to mental health and only mental health and would give the ability for all provincial and territorial governments to tell the federal government, this is what we're doing in our province, this is what we need, this is what we need help with. And it would be an ongoing relationship with the federal government, which I think is desperately needed. I don't think having a minister, a first minister's meeting every four months on health is adequate to do it, or however long uh, you could be waiting for a first minister's meeting. I don't think those meetings are good enough to address it, uh, just because, like I said, health is so broad. I mean, you can say you're addressing it, but you're addressing all other aspects of health along with mental health, which is its whole component of um, difficulties to deal with. So that's really what I feel a secretariat will accomplish, is bringing all levels of government to have one spotlight to talk about mental health within the highest level of government in Canada. So... You decided to go to the federal government, and the way you started this lobbying effort is you wrote a letter to every single MP in the House of Commons. You were not happy with the results. You only had a a few dozen who responded to you. Uh, So you ended up having a face-to-face meeting with the health minister who promised to take your issue to the top and discuss it in cabinet. But you also got assurances that you would have a personal phone call from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on Friday, and uh, that didn't end up happening. W- what happened there? Uh, so I was called at 8 in the morning, uh, and they said that something had come up and that the PM was no longer able to call. Um, they had said they wanted to reschedule. I'm still looking f- for um, the call. I-, I still want to speak to him, even though it was canceled today. I'd still like to speak to uh, the Prime Minister because this issue it needs a leader behind it and the prime minister is one of those leaders that should get behind this issue so i'm looking forward to speaking with them and uh, and really hoping that uh, that we can get another time scheduled i mean i have to balance school right so it's not as easy as saying okay we're going to call you at 10 in the morning are you disappointed that they had to cancel last minute yeah i mean i would have liked some advance warning i mean uh, eight in the morning Okay, yeah, it's four hours until they're going to call. But, I mean, I've been looking forward to this phone call for a number of, uh, about a week and a half. So I would have liked some advance warning that it wasn't going to happen. And yet you, you, you want to push on, obviously. You're disappointed, but uh, it's not sort of, you know, taking away your will to push for this issue. Absolutely. It it won't uh, take away from uh, my will to uh to keep fighting for this because I know that 
thousands of people across the country are struggling and, and need a government that's willing to listen. And being argumentative isn't how a government listens. You have to you have to give them the benefit of the doubt, and you have to uh, uh, to keep discussing this like civilized human beings. When are you hoping to speak with the prime minister? Did they give you any time frame of of when he would be able to call you? I'm hoping next week uh, before uh, the Thanksgiving long weekend. I'm hoping sometime in there. How optimistic are you that the the government will follow through on what you're looking for? Uh, I'd like to be optimistic, but uh, it's government and they go back on a lot of promises. So until I see something concrete that a secretariat's in the next budget, not optimistic at all. You can promise all you want, but until it's written and and in, in, and in place, that's when I'll become optimistic. If they actually say, let's do it, let's get to work, that's when I'll become optimistic. But if they're going to promise it and then they don't do it, I mean, that's usually what happens in government, not just with this government, but governments in past and in, in probably in the future as well. So uh, I'm hoping that they'll do it, but uh, my optimism will grow if I actually see it in writing. All right, well, Noah, your story is not over yet, and uh, we will continue to check in with you and, and see what the status is of both your efforts with the federal government, with the prime minister, and uh, provincial governments. Thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much. That was Noah Irvin, a 17-year-old, pushing the federal government to create a new secretariat for mental health and addictions. I will note that after this interview was done, the prime minister's office did contact me to let me know that there was a scheduling conflict, as Noah had mentioned. Although the Prime Minister will be speaking with Noah in the coming few days to listen to him and discuss ways the country can better support people facing mental health challenges. Still to come on the show, we're joined by comedian Rick Mercer, who discusses why he's ending his popular TV show after 15 seasons. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. As long as Canada has been a country, comedians have been poking fun at the stiff politicians in the House of Commons and the decisions or scandals that they make. In recent years, no one has probably done that better than Rick Mercer who has not just spoofed politicians, but has traveled the country, highlighting cities and small towns alike, and speaking with hardworking Canadians from fishermen to our men and women in uniform. But it's been announced that the 15th season of the Rick Mercer Report will be the show's last, ending its long run on the CBC. McLean senior writer Paul Wells spoke with Mercer on the phone about his career, calling it quits, what it's like to tease and poke fun at politicians, and what comes next? Here is part one of that conversation. Hello. Rick Mercer, thank you for joining us. Great to be here, Paul. How long have you known that you were going to do this? Well, there's a couple of different answers. If you talk to people who are friends of mine, I've been saying this since, you know, year three or four. Mm -hmm. But I would say this summer is when the final decision was absolutely made. Okay. It's a hard job to walk away from because it's a great job. I always did think that the decision would be made for me, like I would run out of steam or people would stop watching or we would find that we were running out of stories. None of those things happened. But I'm also aware of the fact that, you know, TV shows only last for so long and we have already gone uh, 
we've lasted a lot longer than most TV shows, so the time has probably come to, to move on. Okay. Is it ever a hard show to do? There's a lot of traveling. You've, you've got to, you've, um, I mean, I don't do comedy for a living, but I can imagine that having someone point to you every week and say, now you've got to be funny. Uh, there, there, uh, be I would never complain. I'd never complain about how hard it is to do the show. Yeah. I think there's certain people who would look at my travel schedule and they'd be aghast and they would think, oh, I could never do that. But I'm good at it. You know, I, I'm not good at a lot of things, but I'm good at that. Mm -hmm. The people I travel with are good at it. There's been no changes in that personnel. It's always the same people. Um, so, no, I'm not complaining about the show. And it's pretty intense. There's no doubt about it. But I do 20 of them. And I always or 21, depending on the year. Yeah. And I always figure, well, you can do anything 21 times, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, no matter what. How would you say in this last season, is it a different show in its conception, in its, in its uh, style? Is it a different show from when it started, do you think? Or, uh... Uh, well, the show has changed for sure, uh, but not a lot. Not like the initial, I mean, what I envisioned for the show, it's pretty close to the show we do today. The, the, one of the surprises was we became a family show, and I just didn't expect that to happen. When we started, it was an adult show, and uh, I can remember it was a couple, you know, it was probably in the first season at some point, I, I, I said, welcome to Regina, the town that rhymes with fun, and... And, you know, which is just a silly little aside. And uh, I got emails from people saying, well, I had to explain that joke to my seven-year-old or my seven-year-old or my eight-year-old got that joke last night. Thanks. And I was like, what? I was thinking, why are you watching with your kids? Uh, but then quickly we realized it was very much a family show. So teachers were playing it in schools and parents were saying, oh my God, my teenagers will finally sit in a room with me. And we knew from the demographics that we were getting young people and old people and we were getting everyone. And uh, I liked that. I, you know, that was certainly not a, uh, that was a, that was a pleasant uh, um, revelation about the show and who was watching the show. Okay. It does force a rethink about what you're like when you, when you go in as a sort of a subversive, uh, you know, me and a few of my friends have this show on the CBC and we're going to cause a lot of hell. And then suddenly you become kind of Captain Canada. Uh, that, 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 uh, opens up a lot of possibilities, I think, but would also, uh, impose a kind of responsibility. I think, uh, I've never had a problem with being on at eight o'clock. I think some people struggle with that. The biggest thing you can't do at eight o'clock is say, F mm -hmm. and I've never, it's never been a mission of mine to say F at eight o'clock. You know, that's just not, you know, I understand for certain people and lots of people in television, you know, fought really important battles to be able to say certain words at certain times, but it's just never been a, a hill I was willing to die on or wanted to die on or was interested in, um, in general. So, um, I, I saw it only as a plus. I always loved being on at eight o'clock. You, you, you can't, you'll never get a bigger number than eight o'clock. And this is show business. So I, I embraced eight o'clock as far as being subversive. I think, you know, there's been moments where the show has been incredibly subversive. I know you might, you know, ask me now for examples. So I'll have to think about it, but, uh, I, I've never been worried about that. And of course I'm talking to you from Ottawa. The show often brought you to, or brings you to Ottawa. Um, uh, I mean, I've been here for so long, I've forgotten how it's different from the rest of the world. But what is it like when you come into Ottawa with all these, you know, very serious people doing their very serious things? 
and uh, often with a certain lack of self-awareness. Uh, I mean, for me personally, the Ottawa experience has changed dramatically over my career. I can remember, like literally, the first time I went to Ottawa and I got a parliamentary press pass, albeit a temporary one, of course, uh, that was one of the greatest days of my life. I mean, it's one of the few things that I keep with me at all times in my office. Um, and now I go to Ottawa and, you know, I'm sometimes in a situation where a cabinet minister says, I, I used to watch you in college. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's changed a lot over the years, obviously, from my personal perspective. Uh, I don't go to Ottawa as much as I, I used to. Um, I don't have politicians on the show as much as I used to. Now, never say never. I mean, Catherine McKenna's going to show up in the next week or so because we just did a shoot with her where she showed up. But uh, I, I generally, I made a decision not to uh, be, not to spend so much time around them and to spend more time outside of that bubble than inside of that bubble. How come? Uh, I didn't want the relationship to get too cozy, I guess. I mean, I've always been very careful about that. I always made a point of not becoming friends with politicians. There's been some uh, exceptions to that rule. I, you know, I happened to become friends with Belinda Stronach, and uh, but when she was a Tory, I became friends with her, and then of course she became a liberal. But since then, I've just been very uh, careful about that. But that goes back to the very early days of my career when I was doing stage, and I was a. a performing live, basically, in, in Newfoundland and in Ottawa, and I spent a lot of time talking about John Crosby, being very critical of John Crosby, because Crosby was Newfoundland's man in Ottawa, and he was certainly a great target. And, uh, you know, one day a fellow uh, asked me out for uh, a bite to eat and drinks in, uh, in Ottawa, and his name was Ross Reed. And we went out, and he bought me dinner, and we had drinks, and we had a great chat about politics. And within, I would say, a month, uh, John Crosby had resigned. Ross Reed went for the nomination, got the nomination, was elected, and was the senior member in, uh, Newfoundland member in, in, uh, in that caucus. And so suddenly he was, you know, in, in theory, the new John Crosby. And he had just bought me dinner and had, I had drinks with him. And I kind of been viewed him as a friend of mine and uh it was a lesson learned i thought i i you know no more free spaghetti dinners yeah you need a certain distance or else it kind of doesn't work. yeah it just and and all of these people are genuinely nice enough you know yourself you spend enough time around them and if you sit next to them on a plane they're they're far more interesting than most people you'd sit next to on a plane that's how they got to where they are so you have to be careful yeah i i learned the lesson later than i should have these people are not my friends yeah, yeah you absolutely you know and i've never i can't uh, put my finger on uh, a moment where I learned that lesson the way you're saying it, um, because I never ever expected anything from them by any stretch. But uh, I was just fortunate that that spaghetti dinner just kind of put it in perspective. Yeah. Now, so let's that was a long down, time ago. Let's take it down kind of one level of intensity. So it's not whether whether they're your buddies or whether you owe them anything. But uh, when you're just trying to do comedy with someone, as you so often do with someone who isn't. A comedian uh, who actually has a living. <laughs> and do you, do you, do you, does what did you say? Has a what? Actually has a living. Actually. actually oh, okay. Actually. I um, thought you said has a list. No, I said, who are you talking about? Sorry, go on. Um, is it easier when they are, uh, 
working hard to collaborate in your comic endeavor or is it easier when they're utterly clueless and you get to you get to kind of work around them i think politicians are no different than anyone else you can stumble across a fantastic interview with someone who has great timing and uh, just has a natural ability to come across like they're having fun in a very positive way. And that person could be a lobster fisherman or they could be a cabinet minister. Uh, quite often, politicians are trying too hard, and that's a real problem. Because when they try hard, they get in trouble. And, and no one wants to be seen as trying too hard. It just doesn't make for good TV. So they're a bit tricky to shoot with. Um, there have been politicians, of course, that have incredible timing. Preston Manning has great timing. He can deliver a joke. He doesn't have a reputation as that, but he certainly could. And obviously, Jean Chrétien could deliver a joke. He could deliver 10 in a row. He's a, he's a total professional. Um, this crowd, I, I don't know who. I would, I'd be hard-pressed to say out of this crowd, this cast we have now, who's, uh, who's got natural comic timing. I can't think of one off the top of my head. But like I say, I don't really do that quite so much anymore. This crowd is kind of earnest. <laughs> yeah, although I'm sure they think they're hysterical. <laughs> that was the first part of Paul Wells' interview with comedian Rick Mercer. Stay tuned for the second half, coming up after the break, where Mercer discusses his final season of the Rick Mercer Report, responds to critics who say his humor is too gentle, and talks about whether or not Mercer knows what's next in his career. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Before the break, we aired the first part of an interview with comedian Rick Mercer, who recently announced that the 15th season of his show, The Rick Mercer Report, will be its last. Mercer has made a career of humorous visits to communities across the country, satirical or stinging views of current events, and a lot of poking fun at politicians. In the second part of his conversation with McLean senior writer Paul Wells, Mercer discusses the final season of his show, his response to criticisms of that show, and what's next for one of Canada's most recognizable comedians. Um, is there anything that you have goals that you have for the net for, for the next most of a season that you have ahead of you, things that you've never done that you want to do or It's not like that. I I never think of it like that. Like I've always wanted to do XYZ in terms of an adventure. Uh, it's, it's not my bucket list that we're working through. I realize I'm working through a lot of people's bucket lists. Uh, every week, almost, there's something that I'm doing that I know is on a lot of people's bucket lists, but it's, it's not mine. I don't think of it like that. But I think that we're at a point, and the show has been at this point for a long time, that I can literally do what I want to do. And I think our premier episode is a perfect example of that. You know, we opened with these athletes from the Invictus Games, and... You know, I've had a lot of members of the Canadian Forces on the show over the years, and I've been at, you know, military bases, tons of them, and shot at tons of them, and I've put lots of soldiers on TV, and they're always good interviews because you can always find well-spoken, you know, funny people. Um, but I also know a lot of soldiers who are in the situation that you find these Invictus athletes. You know, they're either injured or wounded or um, recovering from some sort of injury, and I know how important that is the Invictus movement is to those soldiers. So I wanted to, to put them on TV and we opened with that. And we opened 
literally with a woman with, you know, extreme post-traumatic stress disorder, a guy with a catastrophic brain injury, and another guy who's, you know, missing both his legs above the knee and, uh, and has had, you know, more surgeries than there are weeks in the year. Uh, I would suggest most comedy shows would not open like that. And I don't know if a comedy show in the world that would open with post-traumatic stress disorder and catastrophic brain injuries and amputations, but that's what we did. And, uh, I'm proud of that. And that's what we'll keep doing. It's all the people I want to talk to. It's a great privilege to be able to do that. Not many people in TV get to do exactly what they want to do. And I get to do it every single week. Okay. Now, uh, perhaps in that context, I want to ask you about this column that John Doyle had in the globe the other day who said, Rick Mercer is great. Everyone loves Rick Mercer enough. Uh, comedy that's too gentle and uh, too deferential. What do you say about that? Uh, I would say there's nothing gentle about uh, a guy who's had both legs blown off or a catastrophic brain injury or post-traumatic stress disorder. But that said, I think uh, John Doyle is wishing that I was something that I'm not. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, it's hard to answer that criticism. You know, it'd be like saying, I like Paul Wells, but I wish he'd rhyme more. I like people who rhyme. Like, okay, well, then fine. Go find someone who rhymes. I don't really know um, what his point is, (laughs) but, you know, it was refreshing to see that his TV column was about television. Fair enough. Um... On the day that it came out, of course, the CBC had a story and, and, and it said, you don't, you have no idea what you're going to do after next June. Uh, is that still the case? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And it's not one of those, uh, you know, scenarios where I have an idea what I'm doing. And I just can't talk about it. It's not that at all. You know, I, I always wanted to be in television. That's why I went into theater to get into television and I always thought it was, when I was a kid, I thought it was the most exciting thing in the world. I don't think that anymore, obviously. That would be weird. But when I was a kid, I was just thought it was the best thing in the world. And when I got in TV, I always wanted my own show, and I've had it. So I've always had a plan and a goal, but I've achieved that goal. I've done it. And so what's next? It's uh, I honestly don't know, and it's brand new territory for me because I've always known what I wanted to do, and it's what I'm doing right now. Is that exhilarating? Is it a little scary? Yeah, it's a little scary for sure, except I also realize how lucky I am. You know, I can do, essentially, for a little while anyway, I can do whatever I want. Um, You know, TV is a mercenary business, for example. Anytime you ever have an idea in TV, the producer in me says, well, can that be a series? Because if it's just a one-off, what's the point in doing it? It's all about becoming a series. And uh, I would certainly have the luxury now to consider things that aren't necessarily a series, but could be a one-off. And of course, now there's all these discussions and notions about what platform you actually want to work on, because you don't have to work on conventional TV if you don't want to anymore. I'm certainly comfortable on conventional TV. I like it there. But uh, that's a relatively new thing. I've never had to think about that. When I was launching the Mercer Report 15 years ago, it wasn't uh, a question of where you would go to do a TV show or to do a show. There was only one place, and that was on television. Cable was a bit of a stretch. Um, Do you have any sense that the corporation is scrambling to figure out what the hell they're going to do with your time slot? Or is that not your uh, no, I mean, I, they've known as long as I've known, because 
I certainly gave them a heads up as soon as I realized. Um, I'm sure they have plenty of options. I haven't actually even had that conversation. It's a great time slot. I'm sure there's lots of people who want it. That was McLean senior writer Paul Wells speaking with comedian Rick Mercer, who is ending his show, The Rick Mercer Report, after its 15th season. Before we end our show, I wanted to point out that on Monday, Canada will see a big transition as we officially say goodbye to David Johnston as Governor General and install Julie Payette as the new representative of the Queen in our country. The special ceremony will take place in the Senate along with a series of other events on Parliament Hill and around Ottawa. The vice-regal role is an important one for our democracy and David Johnston has had that honour for seven years. We interviewed Johnston last week for McLean's on the Hill and he talked to us about whether or not he expects the country to have another conversation about the role of the monarchy in Canada. Well, I'm sure there will be uh, as this debate is... uh going on at all times and and um, appropriately so in a democracy um, and other uh, realms in the commonwealth will will have that debate my own view is that uh, we have uh, an act of succession the succession is clear and uh, certainly my role and that of the other members of the vice regal family is to make that as smooth and as thoughtful as it possibly can be um, when i do get into these debates very often with school children um, <laughs> i say you know um, Canada has evolved uh, since 1867. Uh, We're the product of a thousand years of constitutional history. Um, We have made changes when changes were appropriate in how we govern ourselves, beginning with uh, the British North America Act in 1867 and our Constitution Act of 1982. But always be conscious of what it is you want. And if you're making change, uh, why uh, that change seems quite compelling and what you're getting into. And if you wanted to look for, if you wanted to name 10 countries around the world that seem to have government that pretty well satisfies the needs of the vast majority of their people and has a degree of trust, you'd probably have in that list, you'd have Denmark, Sweden, Norway, United Kingdom, Netherlands, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. What's common to those? They're all constitutional monarchies with vigorous parliamentary democracies. So something has been working well for us. Um, and I think it is very attractive in a um, uh, political entity uh, to, ha- to divide head of state and head of government. Because mm-hmm. your head of government has to do with the business of government. And the head of state, in, in Badgett's word, has to do with the dignity of government. And so it's appropriate that we look after the honor system in, in the head of state role here in Canada. And our honor system is, is the most meritocratic, based on merit without political influence in the world. And that's as it should be. If you're going to honor people of excellence as people that deserve special recognition, you want to be sure that it's excellence that is pretty well accepted as excellence by the vast majority of your people. Um, So there are advantages to having the two separate. The United States, for example, joins head of state and head of government in one person. Uh, That's a big load to carry. If you would like to hear more of that interview with David Johnston, the outgoing Governor General, check out last week's episode of McLean's on the Hill on iTunes or on the websites for Rogers radio stations like 680 News, News 1130 and 1310 News. Of course, on Monday, check out McLean's.ca, our radio properties and city news because we will have coverage of the installation of the new Governor General. Well, that's it for this week's episode. 
Remember, for more of your politics and power, join us next week on The Hill.